And we're going to be looking at one of those passages, 1 Samuel chapter 21, continuing in our series on the life of David. 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 9. Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one is with you? So David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you, or what I have commanded you, and I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or whatever you can find. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is no other except that one here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our desire to live our lives in light of it. We pray that you would anoint uh, me as your a servant to preach your word and that you would anoint each one here to receive it uh, and to worship you and serve you through it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> You've probably all heard this parable, but I think stories bear repeating, so I will repeat it for you. The story goes that uh, there was a man who lived in a two-story house on a floodplain, and there was so much snow that was melting up in the mountains and precipitation downstream that the, uh, the river was threatening to overthrow its bl uh, banks. And, of course, all of the regular news on TV and radio went out to evacuate the area. Most of the people heeded that advice, but uh, there were some who were still sticking around. And uh, there was a jeep that came through and saw this man there and said, really need to be out of here. Uh, we'll take you in the jeep. And he said, no, don't worry about it. The Lord will protect me. Well, the river did overthrow its blank banks, and very quickly the water was up to the second level of the house. And there was a boat that came by and offered the man a ride. And he said, no, no, don't worry about it. The Lord will protect me. And uh, shortly thereafter, he was up on the top of the roof. The water had risen so high, and a helicopter spotted him. And uh, with megaphones, they were saying, come on, grab the ladder. It was dangling right over him. And he waved them on and says, no worries, no worries. The Lord will protect me and take care of me. Well, the flood continued to rise, and predictably, he drowned. And when he got to the pearly gates, he said to the Lord, Lord, I had faith in you. How come you didn't come to rescue me? And he said, 
God said to him, well, I sent a jeep and a boat and a helicopter. <laughs> and I think most people, if not all people, would not be stupid like that when it comes to literal floods. When the water starts lapping at your feet, reality kicks in and you do the right thing, which is why that story is not real funny. Um, reality kicks in. But you know what? People do exactly that thing that that man did in other areas of their lives. They are very, very foolish. They become passive, hoping that and waiting for the Lord to do something that's easier, perhaps getting rid of the spiritual floodwaters. And then they ignore the ways in which God has already provided. Their view of getting a better job is, well, we're praying about it. We're trusting the Lord. And you ask them, well, have you applied for any jobs? Well, no, but we're trusting the Lord for a new job. Uh, their view of kicking a habit, a bad habit, might be a bit better. They're pleading with the Lord, please, Lord, I hate this habit. Please take it away from me. But they're ignoring the spiritual jeep and boat and helicopter that God has provided. And the reason they're ignoring it is because they want something a little bit more convenient, something a little bit easier that they can use. Their view of getting out of debt or fixing their marriage or protecting their home from burglars is really unrealistic. In effect, they want to avoid chapters 21 through 31 of 1 Samuel. Hardly anyone would deliberately choose to embrace the things that went on in these chapters. Actually, I do know some Navy SEALs that would say, yeah, I'd love to be there doing the, the fighting that's going on. But these are tough chapters that we're going to be getting into. And yet every one of these chapters shows God's rich provision. It's an amazing thing. They show God's provision over and over again. Now, if we could have skipped over the last 11 chapters of 1 Samuel and gone straight from chapter 20 into David being anointed as a king uh, over the tribes of Israel, it still would have made for a wonderful fairy tale uh, because here is a, a guy, unknown, an unknown shepherd, being catapulted into a meteoric rise of fame. It's a, a guy who's being persecuted, replacing his persecutor. And um, it would have been something that, uh, you know, still would have fit into the theology of the name it and claim it uh, types of people because it would just be a little bit of danger, a little bit of inconvenience, and yet still make a wonderful, wonderful story. A couple of years ago, Rodney told at least I think it was a couple of years ago. Any, anything that's over like six weeks is a couple of years ago. <laughs> um, Rodney told, uh, you know, had a message dealing with the Cinderella syndrome that many people have with jobs and with other areas of life. Instead of aggressively using every means at their disposal, they act like they're waiting for a fairy godmother to zap them with their wand and turn their dreams into reality. I've uh, talked to people who literally don't know where their next meal is coming from, and I take them to Burger King and buy them a meal, and I sit down and I strategize with them how I can help them out of their hole and what kinds of things they need to do to get out of this hole, and you can see immediately they're balking. They don't want to do anything. Yeah, they'd love to have a palace, but not do the hard work that would get them to uh, that, uh, that palace. They're hoping that I somehow will wave a magic wand and I will turn their pumpkin into a carriage, their mice into horses, and their poverty into riches, right? Well, it doesn't work that way in any area of life. And if you are hoping for a fairy godmother to fix your economics, your children, your lust, your marriage, your 
you name it, the first sin that you need to repent of is the sin of idolatry because your God is a pagan fairy godmother, not the God of the Bible. You see, the God of the Bible has all kinds of stories like we're going to be looking at in these next chapters that talk about dangers and emergencies and struggles and deprivation. And some of these stories are to shake us out of our reveries and get us back to reality and say, there is hard work in this upward call that we have in Christ Jesus. Now, the good news is it's an upward call, right? The good news is God will provide for you. The good news is that providence is on your side. But uh, uh, today we're going to be getting a tiny glimpse as to how God provides during times of emergency, and it sure ain't by waving a magic wand at you. First thing I want you to notice is that God doesn't necessarily take the emergencies away. Now, I shouldn't even have to preach on this. This should be a no-brainer, and yet I have to preach on it because so many people act as if it is not true. They act as if that uh, God is going to. They're waiting for God to take away the emergencies. They're not acting at all. Okay, let's begin at verse 1. Now, David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. So David is still on the run. He's on the run despite his own prayers, despite the prayers of his friend Jonathan, prayers of Samuel, the prayers of the school of the prophets. Then the verse continues, And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David. When news of what Saul had done in chapter 20 reaches Ahimelech, this is one nervous guy. And you can understand it because if Saul is willing to go after David, God's anointed, he's willing to go after Samuel, he's willing to threaten the school of the prophets, he feels maybe Saul might come after me. And his fears were not ill-founded because we're going to be seeing in the next chapter, Saul kills him. Saul kills him. And David has legitimate fears as well. In the previous chapter, David told Jonathan, but truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And you'll remember, Jonathan didn't believe him. No, that can't be true. And yet the danger was still there. And in any period of history, it is sometimes hard to know if Jonathan is right or if David is right. The, the, the Jonathans are the ones who initially say, ah, the, 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 the economy is resilient. Don't worry. The banks will get bailed out. Don't worry. You know, the government would never take away your gold, would never take away your ammo. Don't worry. The government would never let everybody lose their homes to defaulting. Don't worry about it, okay? Uh, Jonathan didn't believe there was danger, but if David had followed his advice, he would be a dead man. Now, sometimes the Jonathans of this world who don't believe every conspiracy, and I don't either, they're sometimes correct. Um, David was willing to check out Jonathan's theory just in case, but David was not naive. His view of God was not the name it and, that of the name it and, and claim it crowd who believe that God will never allow us to go through tribulation. Let me tell you something. Chapters 21 through 31 are David's several years of tribulation. Don't tell David that he's going to uh, be able to avoid all tribulation. Don't tell the Christians in Sudan they're going to get raptured out of tribulation or they'll want to rapture you, knuckle you on the head. They've been going through 50 years of tribulation. I, I think in the West we come up with weird theology that just doesn't fit in other parts uh, of the world. Sometimes it is God's will for us to face multiple emergencies, and in the next few years, we may be facing some of the greatest emergencies that America has ever faced, some of the greatest 
tough times that we have faced. Now, it is true that God provided for David in marvelous ways all through these chapters, but it certainly was not the way that Jonathan had hoped for. David lost everything initially. Uh, in fact, in this chapter, we're, he, he, he only came with the clothes on his back. He didn't have food, didn't have sword, didn't have anything. And I bring this up because there are too many dogmatic Jonathans out there. They're good people. They're friends of mine. They're even right sometimes. Uh, they didn't prepare for Y2K. They scoffed at the idea of preparing for Y2K. And because of God's mercy, they, they didn't come out. They fared fairly well, not preparing for Y2K. And so they assume that they can ignore the telltale signs of Hitlerian fascism in our nation. They assume they can ignore the telltale signs of double-digit inflation, bank failures, worldwide economic collapse. Now, will they be right a second time? Maybe. But I don't plan to just wait around. I plan to be a cautious David. Now, I'm not going to be trembling like a Himalek. The word afraid there literally in the Hebrew is trembling. We're not to be driven by fear. And too many people who see these conspiracies, they are driven by fear. But still, the Bible says we need to be prudent. We need to be taking uh, action. And I'm certainly not planning on God to wave a magic wand and make the emergencies disappear. By the way, one of the reasons I think we're facing these is because our nation is in rebellion and the church is in rebellion. Why would God relinquish that? He could. In his sovereignty, he could. But all of the evidence spiritually seems to point to the fact we may be facing some incredibly troublesome times of the future. The second thing I want you to notice is that God doesn't necessarily make everyone sympathetic with your situation, with your emergency. Ahimelech would just assume that David would have stayed away. Uh, this is a little bit making me nervous, David, that you're here. What's going on? Uh, now, he does help him out with some token help, you know, of, of food. The sword already belonged to David, so that wasn't a huge help. But Ahimelech should have had a broader kingdom perspective, but he doesn't. He's more fearful about his own situation than he is of the dangers David is facing. And if you hope to get through an emergency by completely depending upon other people, you're going to be in for a huge disappointment, huge disappointment. The very people that you thought would stand up for you, would provide for you, would stick with you, are going to let you down. And the ones who might help, you know, might be like a Himalek, just give some token help and say, okay, here's five loaves. Uh, please stay away. Don't come back. You know, I don't want to get in trouble with the authorities. The people that David found loyal, he found one pastor out of all of those 86. Okay, one pastor that, that was loyal. But most of the people that were loyal to him were common people and tax protesters, and people who were running away from Saul, and some of them were kind of a motley crew. And boy, were they loyal to David. They stuck together. It was very much like what happened in Nazi Germany. Very few of the pastors were willing to buck the system. Now, some felt guilty enough that they gave a little bit of money, a little bit of token help, but they were not willing to risk their lives, and very few were willing to preach against Hitler. So don't necessarily think that everybody is going to be sympathetic with your emergency, okay? People tend to default to the status quo and to safety. By the way, we're going to be seeing in the next chapter uh, that these 
priests, these pastors who defaulted to the status quo and let's play it safe, they all ended up getting killed. So it doesn't always work anyway to, uh, to take that approach. But this is one of the reasons why I like this church. You have more in common with the valiant men who surrounded David than you do with Ahimelech. So praise God uh, for that. I appreciate you. These were men, we're going to be seeing, who were willing to hang together, knowing if they didn't, they would hang separately. And I forget who the founding father was. I think it was Benjamin Franklin came up with that one. But I'm just saying that's not the way it is with most people. History shows that most people are like Ahimelech. They're great guys. They're nice people. They want to help in some ways, but they're sure not going to take any risks on your behalf. At most, they'll give token help and hope you stay away. Nor should we be surprised if sheriffs, mayors, councilmen, and courts don't stand by you. When Ahimelech said, why are you alone and no one is with you, he is not denying that there were some servants, and people say maybe some friends with David here, but there were at least some servants, and Jesus' interpretation also says there were people present right there in front of Ahimelech. So all of the commentaries say, when he's saying, why are you alone, they're saying he didn't have any magistrate who was backing him up. He didn't have his military with him. Uh, how come you're here? It doesn't seem very official. There's nobody, quote-unquote, important uh, who is with you. So it was really the magistrates who had bailed. And this is one of the reasons why God allowed Israel to go through several years of suffering is because, number one, all of the civil magistrates were just as guilty. One of their oaths of office was they were to defend the liberties of their people, which means sometimes you've got to resist the tyranny of a higher uh, authority like Saul. And then the, the citizens themselves were passive. They were not holding their local magistrates' feet to the fire to fulfill their, their oath of office. And so what God does is he, he says, if you're not willing to interpose yourself, interposition we're going to look at more in the future, if you're not willing to stand between tyranny and those who uphold you, I'll let you suffer for a while until you come to the place where you're willing uh, to see the absolute necessity of resistance to tyranny. Now, all of you know my eschatology. I'm firmly convinced that Christians will eventually win. But that doesn't mean things are going to get better in the near future. I, I'm convinced they're going to get worse. Uh, the, the very fact that we have very few civil magistrates who are willing to engage in interposition, to me, is an indicator that things are going to get worse before they get better. And this, these sometimes are God's redemptive judgments. God allows tyranny over and over in history to wake His church up, to wake the nation up. When they come to repentance, it's better. It's, we call it redemptive judgment because there's redemption that comes out of it. There's good that comes out of those judgments. So they're not necessarily a bad thing. Now, the fourth thing that we can clearly see in this passage is that God doesn't necessarily remove the need for extreme caution in speech during emergencies. Now, some people would call this lying. Uh, David might have used language like, well, I'm just hiding the truth from people who don't need to know the truth. But let's take a look at verse 2. <clears throat> so David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business in which I sent you or what I have commanded you, and I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Wow, nice story, David. The king has sent you on a secret mission? Now there's basically three interpretations that I've seen in the commentaries that I own. 
And the first interpretation has uh, been taken by, it's actually a great commentary on, on many levels, but it says David is not lying because David is, in, in various psalms that he's written during this time, must be thinking that Saul's not a legitimate king, and he calls God the king of Israel. And so he says, he's not lying. God is the king of Israel. And, and my response to that is, okay, yeah, maybe that was in his mind, but he's still deliberately deceiving somebody by the way in which he words it, even if it's not an outright lie. Second interpretation is that David is indeed lying and that this was a bad thing. David should have told the truth no matter what trouble this got him into. Uh, he, he should not have done this. He should not have implied that Saul had sent him on this thing. I don't agree with this, but there are some good men uh, who hold to this. David Payne's commentary holds to that. Third interpretation is that David deliberately told a falsehood and he was perfectly justified in lying because he was lying to who? Doeg, the Edomite, the enemy of God's people. And he was doing it to protect Ahimelech, a friend of his who had already hidden his sword for him uh, so that it would not be confiscated. During warfare circumstances, the Bible authorizes deceiving the enemy. And they appeal to 1 Samuel 22, verse 22, where David says, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. So knowing it, he gave misinformation. Knowing that Doeg is listening, he's hoping that he words it in such a way that Doeg will believe what he is saying and it won't get Ahimelech uh, into trouble. Now, whichever of those three interpretations you opt for, I think you can at least appreciate David's heart. Uh, he is looking out for Ahimelech's uh, well-being. Uh, perhaps if he words it this way, Doeg won't make a bad report, but he feels bad that Doeg's even here, and he has to say something that will keep both Ahimelech and Doeg in the dark. Well, I'll tell you one thing. If you don't settle this issue that Corey ten Boom and her sister Betsy wrestled with in Nazi Germany, if you don't settle that now, uh, you're going to be in uh, a lick of trouble when you're during emergency uh, crisis situations. And I've seen this uphand. I won't take people on missions trips with me to uh, very uh, closed countries unless they've dealt with this issue because they're going to be getting people into deep trouble. They may be able to get out of the country. Other people may be put to death. And if you tell the truth in a way that harms and sends to their death another person, what you're doing is you're pitting the law against the law in the way that God has not done. In fact, you're actually violating the spirit and heart of the ninth commandment, which says, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Okay, and it's like a court situation. You're getting your neighbor in trouble through your speech. So if soldiers come to your door and they ask, okay, do you have any Jews in this house? Do you respond like Betsy did and say, yeah, they're under the table over there. And if you're doing that, what are you doing in reality? It's not a false witness against your neighbor. It's truth, but it is a witness against your neighbor. Your testimony is sending that person to their death. Or will you respond like Corey ten Boom did and uh, uh, tell, uh, tell a falsehood? Now, some people would say, well, I would put the Jews behind a false wall, but I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to say a thing. So when they ask you, are there any Jews here, I'm not going to tell you. Well, you've already told them. 
<laughs> You've already told them everything they need to know. And you're not getting away from this ethical dilemma with the idea of a false wall because it's called a false wall because it's trying to deceive people, right? You're hiding the truth from people when you're hiding the Jews. And if you tell them, oh yeah, the Jews are in this house, you are implicated in their murder. You are sending them to your death. And so this is such a hard, difficult thing for people to answer. Many times they just default to telling the truth. They don't want to get into trouble. It's the easier thing to do, just like Betsy did. Now, this is an issue you've never studied. I would encourage you to start by reading the Bible's praise of the midwives who lied rather than kill all of these babies. Hebrews praises them for that. Or study Rahab, the harlot, who lied rather than turning the spy, the Jewish spies, over to their certain death from the enemy. Or study God himself instructing Joshua in warfare tactics and saying, now I want you to deceive the enemy by doing this. We're going to make a ruse. You're going to pretend to be doing this, but in reality you're going to be doing something completely different. You need to study out uh, those kinds uh, of issues. You do not owe the truth to a King Saul. Now here is the issue. It is possible to be stricter than God is, stricter than the Bible is, more holy than God is. Well, actually, it's not really possible because God is the definition of holiness, right? He's the definition. And sometimes God's provision is his authorization of extreme caution in speech. This exception to the ninth commandment is God's provision. Now, the and we'll talk a little bit more about this. The fifth thing that we see in this passage is that God doesn't necessarily remove your need to seek provisions, to scrounge for your group, okay? Uh, verse 3 says, Now therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or whatever uh, can be found. So he boldly asks. He tries to find food. He doesn't just sit there hoping God is going to bring food onto his uh, dining room table. Now, can God do miracles like that? He's done it. I've seen God do miracles. He did that with George Mueller on the milk and the bread one time. Okay, But God's normal pattern is he wants you to be seeking. He wants you to be doing everything in your power uh, to, to seek for provisions. He usually does not reward the lazy, the wasteful, the ones who are not good stewards. And so if we come up to some really disastrous times, and only the Lord knows that, we may need scroungers, people who know how to ask boldly and how to bargain. And we may need to pool resources uh, with each other. But Christians are, are, who are passive are blasted by Jesus in Luke 14, and he says, you're not counting the cost. You need to count the cost. Otherwise, you're going to be like the person who builds a tower, and you don't have enough resources, and you can't finish the tower. Uh, he, so here's the point. Don't pit God's provision against human responsibility. God provides through, as we do everything, then he uh, supplies above and beyond what we are able in our responsibility to do. The sixth point is that God doesn't necessarily make everything work if you are a pharisaical standard bearer instead of a gracious image bearer. So let me read uh, the passage. It's uh, verses 4 through 6. <clears throat> and the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. 
And this was bread in the law only the priests could eat. David is not a priest. Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Now let me uh, turn over to Mark uh, chapter 2, and I want to read Christ's inspired interpretation of this passage. Mark 2 and verses 23 through 28. Now it happened that he went through the uh, the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Now the reason appealing to those examples, uh, 1 Samuel 21 was so brilliant, is it cut the feet off from the Pharisees on two additions that they had made to Sabbath law. The first one was how far you could travel. Oh, they've got amazing calculations and trying to figure out how far can you travel on the Sabbath. Some of the Pharisees said you could only travel 2,000 uh, 2, cubits, which is about half a mile. And others said, well, <clears throat> if, if we put a rag or a shirt or something on a tree... Uh, so many cubits out, 2,000 cubits out, then that can be counted as a second home. So then we can travel another 2,000 from that one. And then others said, well, if you get the 4,000 cubits out, you need to be able to get back to your original. So they said you can go 8,000 cubits. None of that was in the law of God. And for that matter, David completely violates all three of those interpretations of how far you can travel. Because David traveled two miles from Nioth and then another 23 miles southwest to Gath. And Christ's point was that necessity can enable you to break the Sabbath. Necessity can enable you to break the Sabbath. Why? Because the Sabbath, its heart was intended for your health, for your well-being, not for your destruction. And the Old Testament already provided for such flexibility. Secondly, David ate holy bread on the Sabbath that was only intended for the priests. But, you know, eating on the Sabbath was so important that God had already made some exceptions. He said, you can work to prepare your food, cooking it, you know, and preparing it, carrying it and stuff. And because eating was so important on the Sabbath, it was a feast day, and these guys have 23 more miles to go. They shouldn't be fasting. In effect, what Jesus is saying is this ceremonial law can flex so that these guys uh, will be able to eat. This is the heart of what the Sabbath is about, is what Jesus is saying. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now let's just think about that for a minute. What Jesus was saying was that God's law was intended for man's well-being, and it took into account not just the rules, it took into account the person and the situation. Now, standard bearers, all they think about and all they care about is the rules. Anyone who thinks 
rules, rules, rules. That's a standard bearer. He waves a banner. He says, here's some rules that everybody needs to follow. Now, if he was waving the whole Bible and he's saying, here is the whole Bible that everybody needs to follow, that'd be perfect. That'd be great. But they don't do that. They take the rules out of context. Now, let me give you an example. If standard bearers were logically consistent, how ridiculous their system would look like. Second, uh, Second Thessalonians 3 and verse 10 says, If anyone will not work, neither should he eat. Now, if we are logically consistent standard bearers who just take the rule, we take it out of context, and we don't look at all the exceptions that the Scripture gives, then we wouldn't be able to feed our babies, would they? Because they can't work. And we wouldn't be able to feed any of the aged and the elderly and the infirm because they cannot work. And they would say, well, just take a look at it. It says, if anyone will not work, neither should he eat. There are no exceptions. Anyone means anyone. Well, that's taking it out of the context. And even standard bearers do not interpret that passage that way. None of them would. Why? They know that he's talking to lazy people who are gossips, who won't work. And he says, if any one of you, that's who he's referring to. Now, here's the point. No standard bearer is going to be a standard bearer on that passage. They're going to be an image bearer. They're going to care for those babies made in the image of God. They know, they understand the flexibility in God's law. And yet they interpret it exactly the same way with other rules. You can be a standard bearer who fails to care for your wife and children with the simple command, be fruitful and multiply. Okay, now don't get me wrong. We love babies. We were hoping to have a dozen babies, uh, have a large family. But we could be standard bearers who don't care for our wives' health, don't care for our children and how they're growing up and the way in which we apply it. Instead of looking at how all the Scripture interprets this, we just waive the rule. You can be a standard bearer when it comes to the commands to fast and fail to realize that the Scripture gives exceptions and say, hey, little kids don't have to fast. The infirm and the elderly do not have to fast. You can be a standard bearer when it comes to Proverbs 31 and work your wife to death, okay, and not realize, okay, Proverbs 31 says... She's staying up late. She's getting up early. No sleep for you, miss, or missus, I guess it is. Um, And they fail to realize there's other scriptures that balance this out and say it's not good to rise up early, to stay up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. And there's other scriptures that say, hey, you need to give a vacation to your wife. You need to give some rest to your wife. And a standard bearer, no, he's going to waive his rule. He's going to stick by that. You could be a, a standard bearer when it comes to your devotions. And you could never fail to have an hour devotions in the morning and an hour devotions in the evening, come what may, no matter how inconvenienced the rest of the family might be, and yet you miss out on the heart of devotions, a wonderful relationship, a joyful relationship with God. In fact, you're going to miss out on the scriptures that indicate there are times, like I'm sure David on this particular day, when you skip your devotions and you have devotions while you're jogging, (laughs) jogging to Gath, you know. There is flexibility that God has depending on the situation and where the person is at. Now, standard bearers only know how to deal with rules. In contrast, image bearers do deal with the rules of Scripture, but as they're applied to the whole man. He's going to be sensitive to the person's age, situation, maturity level, understanding. Standard bearers, they could care less about the consequences. 
Okay, it's all about rules. And I've seen devastation brought to families because both parents or one of the parents is a standard bearer. You kids are going to be in line and there's no sensitivity. No, they don't see the love in the rules. They don't see the relationship in the rules. Image bearers see these rules as, a, as an expression of God's love, an expression of their love. When standard bearers look at the rules, all they see is the rules. And like I say, it's not as if the image bearers ignore the rules or break the rules. They're interested in the rules too. They're part of the image of God and man, right? God's written the law in the heart. He's written the law in the scriptures and he is the source of that law. So they care about the law, but they realize the law is only one part of the image of God. And so they care about the rules and they also care about the uh, the person, and they're also looking for the goal that God has in mind in that rule. Now, here is the important point. The Scriptures incarnate image-bearing, not standard-bearing. Now, here is how the Pharisees managed to get everybody to be standard-bearers, even when they rightly interpreted the Scriptures on the rules. What they did is they pulled a rule from here and a rule from there. They got all of the rules of the Scripture, took them out of context, and made this big long list that everybody had to follow. It's sort of like what people do with systematic theology. Here's a word picture that maybe help, help you to see it. People, when they build systematic theologies, typically will take statements about theology out of context, and they will build a beautiful doctrine of the Trinity and of uh, inerrancy of Scripture and different things like that. Now, again, don't get me wrong. I love systematic theology. Uh, I teach systematic theology, but they completely leave out the practical applications of that doctrine. Every time God gave a doctrine in Scripture, it answered a practical issue. And, and by the way, if you want proof of this, just take two or three doctrines, any doctrines you want, go through the Gospel of John. You could pick any book of the Bible, but go through the Gospel of John and see what kind of practical applications were connected with that doctrine? I think you'll be very, very surprised. You will find the doctrine to be incredibly rich, beautiful, relational. For example, when the, the disciples were arguing with each other as to who would be the greatest and about their authority and stuff like, uh, like Rodney mentioned earlier in the <coughs> communion meditation, Jesus immediately said, hey, that's not the, the way the Trinity uh, relates to each other. He appeals to doctrine, looks at the inter-Trinitarian relationships to show what godly leadership looks like, what godly submission looks like, godly love, godly delegation. So when these disciples, they um, begin to act selfishly, what does he do? He appeals to the doctrine of God's aseity. Uh, when they begin to have doubts, that he appeals to the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture, where they can trust. So for Christ, doctrine was incredibly, incredibly practical. It was, it was not heartless like so many systematic theologies are. Now, it's maybe a little bit over-exaggeration. I, I, I love reading Burkhoff and some of those things, even if they are dry. But if your homes look more like Burkhoff's big fat volume on systematic theology than they do the Gospel of John, you might wonder, am I a standard bearer rather than an image bearer? It, it's possible. It's possible that you could be. Now, hopefully that gives you a word picture of the way God gives rules. The Bible makes rules and then shows how to apply them, gives exceptions to the rules. And if you took the scripture that I gave earlier from 2 Thessalonians a chapter... Uh, 3 verse 10, out of context, 
You know, if, uh, if anyone will not work, neither should he eat. You've got a horrible law. And it's a law that will kill all babies. Why? Because it's not applied the way God applied that rule. But frequently, we do exactly the same thing with other laws. I have met standard bearers who take the law, thou shalt not kill, and they wave this standard and they say, thou shalt not kill means thou shalt not kill. And you cannot, and here they uh, rule out four positive. You, you cannot <clears throat> um, defend yourself uh, against uh, you know, somebody who's attacking you. You cannot prevent a murder from happening by killing somebody who's trying to murder that other person. Uh, you, the government may not ever engage in capital punishment. And fourthly, nobody can go to the military. That's standard bearing. And then they will give the positive and they will say, but this commandment, thou shalt not kill, means you need to preserve life at all cost in the hospital, even if it takes hundreds of millions of dollars of the hospital's and taxpayers' money to be able to do so. Okay, that's idolatry. It's idolatrizing life. Now, I believe the Bible is against all forms of euthanasia. But that does not mean we can steal. That's what they're doing. They're justifying stealing, which is any kind of taxation, this redistribution of wealth, the Bible defines as theft. So they're authorizing theft in order to promote their standard bearing on, on this. What does the Bible do? Well, in Deuteronomy 5, God gave the Ten Commandments, and then in chapters 6 through 26, He gave detailed exa examples of what these commandments mean, what they do not mean. It's Deuteronomy 6 through 26 that keeps people from being legalistic standard bearers. Now, this may shock you, but it's true. It is the case laws which most modern Christians have thrown out in the name of grace, it is the case laws which help you to be graceful, flexible, uh, help to, you to see the laws beautiful. And when you throw them out, almost always you end up with graceless rules and you end up being a harsh standard bearer on some things. That's the irony. So on the sixth commandment in Deuteronomy that we were talking about, those chapters authorized personal self-defense, authorized the death penalty in certain circumstances, authorized just war and other positive things. The negatives that forbade was false witnessing, false witnesses, personal revenge, torture. And we've already looked at the exception of truth-telling. In certain very restricted circumstances, the Bible says you don't owe people the truth. For example, um, you don't have to put a sign on your front door when you're gone on vacation for three weeks. Uh, hey, we're going to be gone. We want full disclosure. We want to be transparent and open with all of our neighbors and the burglars. No, that would be ridiculous. In fact, the Bible would say you can actively deceive those burglars by having the lights in your house turning on and off at different times so that they think that somebody is home. By extension, burglars would fit into the warfare ethics that the Bible gives. And so the Bible shows you the rules, shows you the exceptions to the rules, shows you how to apply the rules to unique situations, shows you how to apply them in a way that's going to benefit your family and benefit your neighbors and how to glorify God. That's image bearing. And it takes much more work to be an image bearer than to be a standard bearer. Standard bearing, that's easy. Kids can do it, right? It takes maturity to be an image bearer. David illustrates that this issue comes to a head during times of emergency. 
and you better deal with it long before emergencies come up. It, you, it will, you, you will face it. Now, I'm not going to get into it, but I've included two subpoints for those who want to take this too far and say, yippee, okay, I can go out and I can do anything I want. Phil Kaiser said so. And I say, no, that's humanism. The Bible and the Bible alone can define that flexibility. And I've given some examples. I could have given you a couple hundred examples where the Bible gives some flexibility. Worship, it gives several different kinds of orders of worship. There's a flexibility it gives. Then secondly, point C, verse 5 shows that flexibility has its limits. Now in this case, and it's always biblical limits, in this case, Eating the priest's bread had its limits. They had to at least have kept themselves from women on the previous day. Okay, so that's ceremonial law. We don't need to deal with that. But just like that had its limits, flexibility with every other law has its limits as well. Just because God says there are exceptions to the law, thou shalt not kill, does not mean you can go out and whack people any time that you please. Just because the Bible says you can deceive the enemy, for example, spies telling fibs to the enemy, does not mean you can go out and uh, start lying to your customers and your uh, business competitors and say, well, there's a sense in which, you know, this is economic warfare, so I can lie to my competitors. No, no, no. The Scripture alone can define this, and the Bible does not authorize such deception. It is only in very restricted circumstances. Now, again, the reason I bring this up is if you're not diligent in studying biblical worldview and ethics and apologetics and all of the things I'm trying to get these young people to study, you're not going to be prepared when the emergencies come. When the emergencies come, you can't reach up under the shelf and say, okay, what did Phil Kaiser say about this? Or what did the other theologians say? No, you're going to be instantly making snap decisions. And the more immersed you are in biblical law, the more accurate your snap decisions will be. Anyway, Christ endorsed what David did here. If you're going to criticize it, you better deal with Christ's endorsement of this, of this passage. The seventh thing that I see in this passage is that God doesn't promise that things won't get worse. Verse 7 says, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. Now the very mention that he's an Edomite is ominous because the Edomites were the enemies of the people of Israel. So when Saul is hiring an Edomite, it's almost symbolically saying Saul also is an enemy of the people of Israel. And sure enough, in chapter 22, this Edomite is used by Saul to kill every pastor of those 86 uh, priests, every one except for one. David thought it was bad in chapter 21. Well, in chapter 22, it gets a whole lot worse. When emergencies come along, certainly we should pray that God would remove those emergencies. There's nothing wrong with praying, but there's no guarantee that God will do so. God sometimes deliberately brings emergencies into your life for your good, not for your comfort, but for your good. Uh, but God would use Doeg to bring about punishment to the house of Ahimelech. He's already prophesied that, and I won't get into it, but he's prophesied that he was going to punish them. And he used Doeg to cause David to grow. I believe God is raising up some Doegs in our nation to kind of bring some reality into the church's life, some discipline into the church's life. And uh, things may get worse before they get better. So the fact that God promises to provide for you does not guarantee the absence of troubles. And yet, and this is the beautiful and yet, and yet God provided for David in all of this. In this passage, God provided bread. 
a symbol of life and all that was needed to sustain life. And he provided a sword, a symbol of all that is needed to protect and maintain that life. Now, we've already looked at the bread, so I'm going to end by looking at the sword. Verses 8 through 9. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. Yeah, it did. King's business to kill him required haste. Verse 9 gives Ahimelech's response. So the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take it, take that, take it, for there is no other except that one here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. Now we saw in chapter 17 that the sword already belonged to David. So what's it doing here? We don't know for sure, but the supposition is that David hid it rather than allowing it to be confiscated. We know that somewhere between... In chapter 17, he owned that sword. It was part of his equipment in his tent. It's very clear there. Somewhere between chapter 17 and this chapter, all arms were being rounded up and confiscated, and David hides this weapon uh, in a place where nobody will be able to, uh, to find it. Now, this speech may have been as much for Doeg's hearing as for Ahimelech's. It was probably this giving of the sword, though, that gave Ahimelech the death penalty. He had previously hidden David's sword, and Doeg now knows it. Now, you might wonder, well, why would that be a problem? Well, it was a problem, as I've already hinted, because there was weapon control throughout the nation of Israel. And it is utterly astounding that out of those 86 priests at Nob, not one of them had a sword or a spear. See, the law of God mandated that people, including the priests, have uh, weapons. In fact, uh, the priest Phinehas, you may remember him uh, striking the Midianite woman and the uh, Israelite through the spear, and God praises him uh, for doing that and averts uh, catastrophe. You would think now that there is these Philistine raiders throughout the nation of Israel, they're robbing stuff and pillaging, that that Saul would want everybody to be armed. No, he's more afraid of his safety than he is of the Israelites' safety. And so Ahimelech here says the only sword at Nob was the one hidden in a place where most people wouldn't think to look for it. And and, and what had happened then is people, soldiers had gone door to door to confiscate weapons. And David obviously has said, you know, I don't want to lose the sword of Goliath. Work is a good place to hide it. And he hides it behind the ephod. Anyway, this, brothers and sisters, has been the sad practice of tyrants all down through history. When Saul first came to power, only Jonathan, his son, and he had swords. Why? Well, it wasn't the Israelites who were tyrants back then. It was the Philistines. They were the ones who were in charge in chapter 13. And in chapter 13, when Jonathan and Saul, I mean, John, yeah, Jonathan and Saul had weapons in their hands, swords, it was illegal for them to have those swords. The text makes it very clear. And yet, God's law trumps man's law. And Scripture indicates if you do not provide for your family and defend your family, you are worse than an unbeliever. Saul initially encouraged everyone to get armed. This is the way it is with good kings. And he had a 40-year reign. It's only toward the end of this reign where he begins this confiscation of weapons. And he must have become very paranoid about what um, the people were thinking. 
And he's imitating the pagans by disarming the population and the priests and the Levites. And without exception through history, governments that disarm people are tyrants who are not to be trusted. And those who believe in liberty want their people armed. It's always been that way. Now, this is controversial in Christian circles, but it really ought not to be. Embedded right into the law is the right to defend yourself against common criminals, riots, bandits. Exodus 32, verse 27 says, Let every man put his sword on his side. Weapon ownership was a part of the law, and Jesus continues that in the New Testament in Luke 22, verse 36. Now, earlier he had sent them out without a sword, without a knapsack, without money, without extra pair of clothes. And he said, hey, when I sent you out doing that, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing, Lord. And he said, you can trust me when those things are taken from you. I will provide. But he said, now I'm going to give you an abiding principle. He says, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. He's saying, do not presume upon God financially. You've got to be financially responsible. Likewise, a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. That passage is saying that owning a weapon is more important than owning a second garment. Now, some of you got 15, 30, 50 garments. You don't have a weapon. What's going on? Okay. <laughs> now, at this time of night, this is one of the most fundamental, okay, fundamental of God's God-given rights. At this time of night, the disciples didn't have the time to sell a garment and to go buy a sword. But verse 38 goes on to say, Then they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. So he's talking literal swords. Some people try to symbolize this all away. Now, there's literal swords in their hands. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, while Jesus did not allow Peter to raise his sword against the civil magistrate later on in this chapter, and this is an important balance in Reformed theology, you cannot individually raise your sword against the civil magistrate, and we'll look more at that in the future. Still, he allowed his disciples to own illegal weapons. And I say illegal because Rome had confiscated all weapons from the citizens. In fact, even their soldiers had to turn in weapons when they went off duty. Why? Because the Sicarii hid weapons up their sleeves and would be in the crowd and stab a Roman and then go off, mingle in the crowd. So many Romans had been killed, they say, okay, we've got to have gun control. Well, they didn't have guns. We've got to have sword control <laughs> uh, back then. And so Jesus was commanding something that was in violation of Roman weapon control laws. We need to understand that allowing such weapons is a major part of God's provision for you to protect yourself during times of emergency. Okay, the police are not going to be always there to protect you. No matter how good the police may be, they will not always be there to protect you. In a later chapter, David would do the same. He commanded all his men, every man strap on his sword. So every man strapped on his sword. That was a violation of a weapon control act. And if you've got conscience problems over this, then what you are saying is an unconstitutional law can trump God's law. It cannot. It cannot. You cannot get a more fundamental issue than having survival food and survival weapons. You cannot. Now, some people get very nervous with the Scripture at this point because they say, what if every criminal got a weapon? What if every gang member had a weapon? There would be all-out war. Well, they need to wake up and smell the roses because the gang members already have weapons, thank you. And uh, the criminals already have weapons. They got more weapons than the honest citizens have. 
Okay, gun control has never kept weapons out of criminals' hands. As Thomas Jefferson said, laws that forbid the carrying of arms disarm only those who are neither inclined nor determined to commit crimes. Such laws make things worse for the assaulted and better for the assailants. They serve rather to encourage than to prevent homicides, for an unarmed man may be attacked with greater confidence than an armed man. That was President Thomas Jefferson. And everybody said, oh, yeah, yeah. Nowadays, if you say something like that, you're considered a crank. You're considered a nut. That's how far we have gone from our founding fathers. Gun control is ungodly. It is wicked. It is unconstitutional. But far more importantly, it is unbiblical. The gun control act that they tried to foist on America in the 60s was for the most part copied word for word. And I, I didn't take the time to look up uh, how much. I think it was around 60% was taken word for word from the Gun Control Act of Hitler, which enabled him to massacre citizens with impunity. The Gun Control Act of Turkey led to the slaughter of millions of Armenians by the Muslims. Weapon control in Rwanda led the Hutus to massacre the Tutsis in riots everywhere. They're just absolutely massacred. The founding fathers of this nation saw the handwriting on the wall if private citizens were ever disarmed because it would lead to the kind of totalitarian tyranny they were seeing in Europe. One of America's most important founding fathers, Patrick Henry, Explain the purpose of the Second Amendment. People debate what that means. Well, just go to the people who wrote it. He was one of the chief promoters of the Ten Amendments. He was the one who fought hard for these first Ten Amendments. Here's Patrick Henry's interpretation of the Second Amendment. He said, The great object is that every man be armed. In 1788, Richard H. Lee said, A militia, when properly formed, are in fact the people themselves and include all men capable of bearing arms. To preserve liberty, it is essential that the whole body of people always possess arms. The mind that aims at a select militia, he's talking about, okay, militia is just a small group of professionals. He says the mind that aims at a select militia must be influenced by a truly anti-republican principle. In another place, he said, whereas to preserve liberty, it is essential that the whole body of the people always possess arms and be taught alike, especially when young, how to use them. And we've seen in a previous lesson, David was taught very young how to use weapons like the sling uh, against bears and lions and Philistines. Remember, he was uh, treated as, even before he fought Goliath, he was treated as being a valiant soldier. In George Washington's address to the First Congress, he said, firearms stand next in importance to the Constitution itself. They're the people's liberty teeth, keystone. The rifle and the pistol are equally indispensable. More than 99% of them by their silence indicate that they are in safe and sane hands. The very atmosphere of firearms everywhere restrains evil interference. When firearms go, all goes. We need them every hour. So our first president, actually he wasn't really, really the first, but George Washington said firearms stand next in importance to the Constitution itself. Well, it's no wonder to me that the Second Amendment is being trampled all over when the Constitution has been trampled on all over for decades and decades. The bottom line is citizens need food and weapons during times of emergency. These are not luxuries. These are absolute necessities. In fact, Jesus said it was such a necessity, if you don't have one, sell your garment and buy one.
That's how necessary it was. And if they confiscate guns, who cares? There's other weapons that you can get, even slings. There's all kinds that you can get. And of course, these weapons are for rabid dogs and varmints and criminals um, and should be used with biblical wisdom. But you know, here's, here's the problem. Too many Christians have a fairy godmother mentality to these provisions. They think, you know, the government will just wave a wand and the police will show up when I need them if we ever have trouble, if we ever have riots. Let me tell you a secret. In every court case that I have read where a citizen has sued the police department for not showing up in time, they've called them and 10 minutes later they came and it's too late and somebody died or, or you know, everything was, was robbed. The courts have consistently said that it's an unreasonable expectation to expect the police to be everywhere. What the state is admitting is that the state is not a fairy godmother. Okay. Now, there are other Christians who say, okay, well, I'm not trusting the state, but I'm going to trust God. I don't need any weapons. I'm just going to trust him to, to, to protect me. If you've seen any of the videos of the Los Angeles riots, they're tearing through town and killing people and burning down buildings and robbing and looting. They were equal opportunity thugs. They didn't just go against the atheists. They pillaged the Christians too, if they were unarmed. Now, the only people that they went by that on the videos that I saw were the Koreans, many of whom were Christians, by the way. They went right by those guys, and those guys didn't have to fire a shot. They were just standing there with their shotguns, okay? They were armed, and so the Korean stores still had their food, and they still had their weapons. Now, the government wants to come along and protect these Koreans and take away their guns. That is so ungodly. It is so ungodly, and it needs to be resisted. So... This was God's means of providing for them during emergency riots. This story of David, I think, is such a fitting introduction to the next chapters because it shows in a symbolic form that God is interested in providing for all our needs, all our needs. But he works through human responsibility. Don't wait for a fairy godmother to zap you out of an emergency. Don't be like that foolish man who's on top of a house Telling the helicopter, ah, it's okay, no worries, just move on. God will protect me. Instead, what you need to have is the attitude of Oliver Cromwell, who told his soldiers, yes, trust God, but trust God and keep your powder dry. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's pray. Father God, we know that these are not words that uh, many modern citizens want to hear, and yet these are words that they desperately need to hear. People are so used to slavery that they don't even realize when liberties are being taken away. Father, it grieves me when one of our representatives to the Senate in an email to me just this week said that sometimes these uh, dearly held rights have to be taken away to have security in our nation. And Father, uh, this so exemplifies the attitude of King Saul we pray that you would remove from office in our nation all of those who have that attitude, that you would wake up citizens uh, to uh, get out of a slave mentality and to get into a mentality that uh, is responsible, not thinking that some fairy godmother or some uh, benevolent taskmaster will uh, wave a wand and get them out of trouble. But Father, uh, being responsible as free men and women I pray that our children uh, would uh, grow up not to have slave mentality, 
But as Galatians 4 indicates that uh, all uh, of the training that we give to them would usher them more and more into making their own decisions and, and to acting like free men. Uh, Father, may we stand fast in the liberty that Christ has ushered us into, not relinquishing it to anyone. May we be willing to stand up against thugs, but also to stand up against tyrants. I pray that you would give pastors across this nation boldness, courage, uh, the guts to uh, take on uh, with the preaching of the word, the whole counsel of God, to take on uh, the high things that exalted themselves against the knowledge of you. And we pray that you would, uh, through these redemptive judgments, uh, bring such purity, uh, such maturity to your church that this nation would once again be one nation under God, a nation that trusts in you and uh, acts responsibly under your law. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.